This podcast is brought to you by NAB. More than money. Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. To kick things off this week, we're checking on Melbourne's awakening property market, one month since public auctions have resumed in the city. And then we look at what makes Australian residential architecture so special and so wonderful, and how the industry is tracking as we approach the end of the year. And to wrap things up, we move out of the house and onto the pavement to unpack the importance of walkability for creating livable suburbs and cities. It's been one month since public auctions returned to Melbourne and over six weeks since the ban on private inspections was lifted. Both were expected to give Melbourne's market a much-needed shot in the arm after months of subdued real estate activity. Today, we're joined by Emily Power, Domains Magazine Editor in Victoria, to get an update on how the spring market is tracking in Melbourne and in Greater Victoria. Emily, hello, and great to have you back on Property Unpacked. Thanks for having me on. Now, Emily, it's been about a month since public auctions returned to Melbourne. How are they going, and have we seen a big return to selling under the hammer in what is typically Australia's largest auction market? Yeah, well, look, we can chat data, but let's go with a real-world example first, which really shows it best. So over the weekend, a buyer who had not set foot inside a five-bedroom home in Malvern East paid $5 million under the hammer for it. So that was the highest auction sale of the weekend. Now, if that doesn't show that the auction market in Melbourne is back with a bang, I don't know what will. In this climate, uh, listings themselves aren't really a barometer at the moment for the health of the market because listings are down, but that in a lot of ways has helped support a healthy, buoyant market. So, Emily, if we hone in on that example you just mentioned, which I read about in the weekend, I I still find is so staggering. Is a lot of that because there's not enough A-grade stock on the market? So, what is an A-grade property? You know, where the location's pretty brilliant, the floor plan's great, it's a beautiful blue chip property. Are, Are they selling because of the demand for those types of properties or are people becoming more sort of adventurous in their appetite for potentially buying properties sight unseen? I think it's a combination of both of those factors, Alice. So one is that family homes are in high demand and generally speaking, they do have an A-grade location because they're close to public transport and close to really good schools. And then the other thing we're seeing is just a lack of stock across the board. So at the moment, Domain is forecasting 650 and just under 500 auctions for the last two weeks of November. But if we look last year, they were super Saturdays with 1,300 and 1,260 Mm. respectively. And yet the clearance rate is around the same as it was this time last year. So high 60s, low 70s. And then you throw into the mix the fact that agents have been great in terms of making sure that people can inspect property safely, that if you don't need to actually go through the property physically, they've got great videos, they've got the whole setup. They learned a lot of really good business lessons during COVID. So I think this particular buyer and others that I've heard of still buying sight unseen, it is still happening, even with on-site auctions returning in, in Melbourne. But still, $5 million without setting your foot inside it is staggering. But I will say that it was a beautiful house. So if you were going to take the risk, you would on on a beautiful period home in Malvern East. 
Mm. Emily, how have Melburnians adapted to the restricted auction numbers and are a lot still bidding online or are people trying to make sure they've got a spot in the street should they wish to bid at a public auction face-to-face with an agent and and a bit of an audience? Well, agents have kept online auctions for the very reason that there is such high demand for the number of properties that they have. So it's not strange to see four, five or six groups of bidders on one property but with the limits and and capping on numbers that are allowed on site, they've had to couple it up with online auctions, which the feedback was going back months ago that buyers really enjoy that. So we're hearing of 50 or more people registering for online auctions and it hasn't seemed to dampen appetite. Mm. Emily, we saw both houses and unit prices hold relatively steady over the September quarter. What are agents expecting in the months ahead for the Melbourne market? Well, agents are saying it's a strong market. And now normally when we talk about graphs and data, we want them going upwards. But the fact that for houses and units, uh, growth stayed well flat shows that it was resilient during a very tough period and we didn't see a lot of distress listings. So just as our research analyst, Dr Nicola Powell, predicted that we'll see a short-term rebound of the market because demand is outweighing supply and that supports prices, agents are also seeing properties selling over reserve and strong demand for family homes. So they're feeling good at the moment and I think it's a mixed bag in terms of which agents think metro auctions will continue through summer and those that think there will be a hibernation period for the metro market. And then when we talk about agents in regional areas, they're having what we'd call an early summer. They're run off their feet with inquiry from city buyers in a bigger way than that they've even had, say, over the January, February period each year. So agents, their patience has been rewarded with a strong market at the moment. Mm. And what about what's going to happen early next year? Do you feel, Emily, in terms of obviously the government assistance is coming to an end in many respects and is there an expectation that we will see perhaps more distressed sales and, you know, sort of the reality of this situation catching up with some homeowners? Uh, Yeah, interesting question. Distressed sales, I genuinely don't know, but when you look at everything else that's been happening, the right ingredients are there for a market that remains resilient and one that buyers and sellers can feel optimistic and confident about. So one of those is ultra low interest rates and bank mortgages at their lowest rates offering customers around 2% per annum. That gives a lot of people an opportunity to really chip away at the principal part of their mortgage, create some equity and then potentially leverage that into another property next year uh, or to renovate. So I think that low interest rates are going to really be cushioning for a lot of people. Obviously, interest rates are the biggest driver of the property market and support it to stay active through economic uncertainty. So given that the RBA have been very clear that interest rates are likely to stay low for a long period of time, I think that's going to help to balance out some of that biting reality that's going to kick in once government assistance subsides. Now, Emily, have we seen a shift in where buyers are looking and what types of properties buyers are looking for? Mm, Very much so. So we used to talk about the tree and sea change maybe three or four years ago, Alice, when the market was booming and people were motivated to get out of town and buy a cheaper property. That conversation was motivated by prices. 
But the reasons now are very different. This is about lifestyle. And so whilst Melbourne's unit and house prices were flat, we saw some tree change suburbs with tremendous double-figure growth. So to tick them off, Euroa, East Geelong, Lawn and Yarrawonga all had between 20 and 26% annual change in their median. Now, East Geelong, in a sweet spot really for city buyers who might want to go there, easy commute, 713000 median house price. I mean, that is very, very tempting. And then you look down the list at places like Myrtleford and Churchill and Mount Martha, of course, are always popular, hovering 16 to 18% growth. So we have not just anecdotal evidence, but we're seeing it in the data. I, I don't think anyone who works in property would expect to see that slow down next year. Mm. Emily, that was really interesting. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for the chat. The most accurate description for our next guest on the podcast is the Brains Trust of Architecture and Design in Australia. Jenny Brown has been writing about the subject for decades. She covers everything from the latest attention-worthy projects around the country to emerging trends like tiny homes and sustainability and the recent Australian Institute of Architecture National Awards. So there really is nobody better to walk us through what architecture gets right and wrong in Australia and what trends we can expect to see as we approach a new year. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Wow, Alice, thank you for that. I'm, I'm in the words of uh, Joe Biden, humbled. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jenny, as mentioned, you've been covering architecture and design for Domain for years. On a global scale, how does Australia fare in terms of innovation and creativity in the industry? Alice, on a global scale, Australian architecture bats way above its weight. And we are always so well represented, particularly with residential in international competitions. And so too, I must say, are the New Zealanders. Mm. And Jenny, has that evolved a lot over the years? Like, have you really noticed that growing presence in, in those forums? Oh, absolutely. It was explained to me as a result of the mining boom. So to have really good architecture, architecture is a is one of the arts that requires patrons and patrons to, you know, get great architecture require money because it's a pretty expensive thing to do. The mining boom and, and plus, a, you know, as you'd know, Alice, an, a, a, an obsession with residential architecture in this country gave architects a terrific forum for innovation and expression and really that's what's brought us up into the international forum. Mm. What are Australian architects really excelling at? What is our strength in what we are producing work-wise? This is in a no particular order list, right? What we're great about is our use of materiality, what they call honest materiality. So that is revealing materials for what they are. So timber is timber, concrete is concrete, stone is stone. We're very bold with using beautiful materials and particularly timber. We've got brilliant timber in Australia. We're fabulous because of our climate at the indoor-outdoor connection. We're very good at sustainability. The young architects coming through are a really powerful lobby for sustainability 
but also standards, you know, planning requirements. And the one that I'm very excited about at the moment is clever cabinetry. Cabinetry is more and more important and more and more part of the beauty of an interior. So I think that's where we're pretty good. Mm. Jenny, what about working with different size footprints? You know, Australia has always had such a luxury of space and we look at other cities around the world that have had to really be so clever in working on very small or tight footprints. And as Australia's cities are evolving and growing, how are we going on that front? You know, I, I, I think we're at a stage now we will never say that bigger is always better, for example. Well, what an interesting moment to ask that question because Australia's always had a rather bloated real estate because we've had space, because we're a very horizontal country with a lot of sort of elbow room. We've created big houses and in the early, you know, through the 90s really, we had the biggest housing in the world, you know, two point something times greater than, say, the UK. And then it started to dip as power became more expensive and as families became smaller, we started to shrink that footprint. And that, I thought, was really good for architecture because it made design work harder. But we're going up again, Alice. We're spreading out again. And I think this will only continue with the work from home trend and and multi-gen families again. I think the challenge in a lot of Australian cities is that the differences that exist council to council. So as soon as you cross a main boundary into a new council, things can change vastly. So it's kind of very blunt, isn't it? And and I think that's such a shame when we know how important neighbourhoods and, and feeling sort of the ambiance and, and the character of an area, that people love that about certain suburbs you know, in Australia, all over the country. And I think that's what's really sad when it's just so black and white, the borders of these councils. Oh, absolutely, Alice. And the other thing that we get so badly wrong is context, which is with a very few exceptions, for instance, East Melbourne, and I must cite here a couple of cities actually that get it right, Brisbane and Adelaide look after their heritage neighbourhoods in a contextual and scale sense. So they preserve whole neighbourhoods and, and the feel of whole neighbourhoods. And that's, you know, what's so beautiful about them. In cities like Sydney and Melbourne, where development, I mean, it's the pressure of the price of land, actually, that uh, is driving this. And also that developers who aren't always informed by architectural thinking, heritage thinking, I mean, heritage has been treated as the enemy of development. What a sad situation. So that leaves, and also, Alice, that heritage protection is largely left to neighbourhood groups, neighbourhood sort of collectives who've got together to say, we want to protect how this place feels, what it looks like. You know, that houses exist in a context of many other houses, whereas, you know, in, in um, cities that have been pressurised by development, and by bad development, ugly development, I've got to say, we've lost context. We've lost the charm factor. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very big issue. Jenny, if we talk now about trends, you know, it's early to call what effect the pandemic will have on architectural projects. Have we seen anything new emerge from 2020 that is worth keeping in our back pocket for what we might see more of next year? 
Um, yeah, look, it's very early, Alice, because architecture is such a long-form thing to do and planning, as you know, takes months, if not years, you know, to even get something through. But I've been talking to some architects recently about this and they're suggesting that this could be a moment of opportunity for architecture. This could be an opportunity. Suburbia gets new life, you know. Another thing that I've seen start to happen is a refocusing on the conversion of industrial warehouse stock, which makes for great home office conversions. Strip shops, say in Sydney and Melbourne particularly, uh, that, that are being deserted by pandemic struck shops and businesses could very feasibly become small suburban offices, bringing life back to those strips that are looking very threatened, particularly in Melbourne. Uh, move to the country, please, please let's protect the heritage because that's where the heritage is at the moment, is in the country centres. Please let's look after that without doing what we've done. All of this is actually in obviously the hands of everyday Australians and how they want to approach how and where they live, isn't it? So let's hope that this sort of COVID period has given people pause to really start making really intelligent decisions to how they approach their residential properties because I, I agree with what you're saying, Jenny. I'd love to see more of it. So, Jenny, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you, Alice. Bye. In October, the Brisbane Times reported that if you'd lined up all the Brisbane streets without footpaths, they would stretch for approximately 1,700 kilometres, the distance between Brisbane to Melbourne. That's 40% of Brisbane streets without concrete footpaths. Now, while it may seem like such a simple or mundane part of city planning, the absence of footpaths in our cities can really affect its livability. And it's not just Brisbane. Not a single Australian city made it close to the top in a recent ranking of walkable cities by the Institute for Transport and Development Policy. Joining us today to talk about the importance of walkability in our suburbs is Executive Officer of Queensland Walks, Anna Campbell. Anna, hello and welcome to Property Unpacked. Hello. I'm really looking forward to talking. This is a subject very close to my heart, Anna, and I think it's one of those things that for a lot of Australians, we just take for granted, you know, how lovely it can be to be in a walkable area. So why don't we first talk about, can you explain what constitutes a walkable city or an area and how is it actually measured? Yeah, it's really interesting and walkability can be simple, but it can also be complex. And it's very much attached to the climate. So for example, in Brisbane, we're in a subtropical climate. So we really need to make sure that there's really good shading over the paths. So it needs to have a path to travel a way to get on the path so there's a curb ramp or there's a pram ramp um, and that allows you to push up your pram or your wheelchair and of course there needs to be a location to walk to so if you're going to a shop or to uh, public transport it needs to be connected so it's simple in that manner that we think of walking is just about paths but there are so many other elements that relate to that 
And we also look at the ways that we can measure that. So it can be as simple as um, a little checklist and Heart Foundation Walking have released a really fabulous community walkability checklist where you can go around your street and see how walk-friendly it is. And it breaks it up into a few different areas of discussion, which is really interesting. And Anna, what about cyclists? You know, I've got around where I am lots of lovely paths, but they're often shared with cyclists, which is great. But I am aware that for some people in the community, they can find that quite confronting having cyclists whiz past at what feels like 100 miles an hour. How does that sort of couple with walkability? Yeah, so we have a really challenging environment in Queensland under the state road rules where bikes and scooters are allowed on footpaths. So that means that it's even more important to be designing footpaths that are wide enough to accommodate all those users. So we really need to make sure that we're designing accordingly. And then, of course, people are mindful of all the different competing users on the footpath or shared path. Anna, finally, Queensland walks an advocacy group for more walkable places in the state. What sort of work do you do to help foster these more walkable spaces? Yeah, so Queensland Walks is primarily volunteer-based. We've been around for seven years as volunteers uh, and we were able to uh, secure some project funding to be able to engage the community through the Queensland Walking Strategy to be able to do some really elemental work in getting people to talk more about walking and why walking is so important. So one of the things that we're doing is on our website and a piece called The Walk Hub and that's providing tools resources for local community members to be able to advocate in their own environment. Some of the other things that we've been doing is connecting through Queensland Walking Alliance, bringing together some of those stakeholders from health and recreation, from transport, from planning, and having a focused conversation about how we can prioritise walking and walkability and pedestrian needs, uh, which has been really valuable work. And then lastly, some of the work that we've been doing is um, with a Queensland Walks Week, which is celebrating walking. We need to remind people how lovely, how um, special and important walking is. Um, and it seems to be this uh, undervalued, underfunded activity, and yet we all need to be doing it. Um, so we do that connecting with our members, so our local and state members, and we work with government departments as well. But we like to link in with the community through social media and representing them in an advocacy manner where needed. Thanks so much for joining us today, Anna. Thanks, Alice. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and look out for further episodes dropping every Thursday. Now, if there's a story you'd like to tell us or you have a question we could perhaps help answer, send us an email at propertyunpacked@domain.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by NAB, more than money. This episode was produced by Adrian Lowe, Kate Burke and Danielle Giannopoulos. It was edited and mixed by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au. Talk to you next week. Thank you.